My name is Carter Kaiser, and I'm the preaching intern here at Highland, and I am so happy to be with all of you today. We're going to be in Matthew 16, 13 through 18 this morning, Matthew 16, 13 through 18, which is a passage that has a lot of important biblical concepts in it. And so you could write a few different sermons on just this one passage, but today we are just going to focus on one specific dimension, Matthew 16, 13 through 18. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I was in Israel a few months ago on a guided academic trip through Lipscomb University. And one of my favorite places that we went to was Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi was kind of out of the way for us. We were staying in the Galilee region and Caesarea Philippi is 25 miles north of where we were staying. So it was about an hour long bus ride. And I'll be honest, it was kind of like an anxious bus ride because we're on these narrow roads going through these mountains that you see up here. And they're these rocky, steep mountains and it's really hilly and we're having to take these tight corners and we're on this really tall bus that's pretty wide. So like I said, we're going on these narrow roads and whenever you look down um, out of your window, you kind of just see this like sheer cliff face, okay? So it was kind of like, uh, it felt dangerous. We were completely fine, but it felt dangerous, okay? But after about an hour, we get off the bus and the first thing you notice when you're in Caesarea Philippi is that it's not a very big place, okay? But in its prime, it was incredibly important because it was the main residence in the capital city of a ruler named Herod Philip, okay? He used the city as kind of his center of government and also as a center of pagan worship, okay? And so the reason why it's important to know that is because the main attraction there was something known as the gates of hell or the gates of Hades, right? Like we've got Graceland and they had the gates of hell, okay? So it's People just have different tastes, okay? But what you'll see up here in a second is the gates of Hades. And basically the gates of Hades is this big cavern and it had streams that were running into it, okay? And so in the ancient days, people believed that the gods used caves to travel into the underworld. And then streams were also symbols of the underworld. So here is a place in Caesarea Philippi where you have these two things that come together, this cavern and then these streams that lead into it. So to them, this was obviously the gates of hell, okay? So they believed that Caesarea Philippi was literally a highway to hell, 
okay? And so next to the highway, they built a house. Now, the house was a temple to a god known as Pan, okay? And you'll see an image of the temple of Pan here in just a second, okay? So the temple is carved into the side of a mountain, and it kind of gives off this appearance, this air, that it is a solid foundation, that it's a place that will last because it's carved into the side of the mountain. Okay, now Pan was believed to be a fertility god. And in those days, fertility gods were incredibly important to culture because fertility gods brought about crops and they brought about childbirth. And so they were incredibly important, but it was commonly believed that during the winter, the fertility gods would go into the underworld to hibernate and then they would come back on the surface during the springtime. But the residents of Caesarea Philippi didn't like whenever Pan, who they believed to be was in and there, they didn't like whenever Pan went down to the underworld because it meant that their crops wouldn't grow and their women weren't able to get pregnant. And so in order to get Pan back to the surface, they would go to the front of the gates of hell and they would do detestable things to try to get him back to the surface. And so even though this image seems disconnected from us, it actually gives us a clear window into the human condition. Because at its core, these detestable acts show how far people will go to cure their desperation. On Netflix, uh, a brand new documentary about Arnold has just come out. And in that, he explains himself that a common theme in his life is always wanting more. You know, you see that in his acting career, you see that in his political career, but you especially see that in his bodybuilding career, okay? Arnold had this desire to be a larger-than-life figure in more ways than one, but especially physically, all right? And so he had this physique in mind of how he wanted to physically look. And in order to attain that physique, he chose to take steroids, right? In other words, he began to look to something that would, would provide him with an experience that he could not normally attain, okay? And I think that this example shows up in most areas of life, and that's because we live in a world that is constantly seeking power in everything but Jesus, our quest to see Jesus is taking place in a distracted world. You know, we turn up our nose to the people in Caesarea Philippi who are looking into all of these different avenues of transcendence to experience something outside of themselves. But that is happening today. And it can look a lot of different ways. I think of a person who might be financially insecure, but they have this desire to have a lot of things. And so what they do is they open up multiple credit cards to buy things they don't have with money that they don't have. I think about the prominence of hookup culture, how people will go from person to person to try to feel that sense of love and belonging that they may have never felt before. I think about someone who feels wronged or unheard by friends or family, and so they go to social media to gather an affirming mob that will champion their cause with them, right? 
Our world has all of these different things that people are turning to that they think will cure them, which makes them no different from the people in Caesarea Philippi. To give you a better image, here's what one writer said about the city. Caesarea Philippi was like a red light district in their world, and devout Jews would have avoided any contact with the despicable acts committed there. It was a city of people eagerly knocking on the doors of hell. And Jesus decided to bring his small group there, right? You know, usually like the small group location conversation is like, all right, whose house are we doing? You think in Chili's or like Starbucks? And Jesus is like, boys, we're going to hell, okay? But really, the question is, why did Jesus bring the disciples there? You know, as I, as I just described, this was not an easy trip. In fact, it was incredibly convenient for the disciples because they, their home base was in Galilee. So they would have had to travel 25 miles north through all of that rocky, hilly, mountainous region. And it would have been a pretty, pretty tough journey all to get to this terrible place, okay? So it seems certain then that Jesus intentionally brought the disciples there. But the question is why? Well, for the Gospel of Matthew, this moment is seen as the turning point in the ministry of Jesus. Because in literary structure, this, this right here is the center of Matthew's Gospel. And if you think about a play, you have Act 1 and you have Act 2. And Act 1 leads up to something that will eventually unfold in Act 2, okay? So if you think about it like this, this is the very end of Act 1. Because from this moment on, Jesus and the disciples will turn toward Jerusalem, where the disciples will see Jesus intellectually and spiritually challenged. They will hear the crowds speak about a man that they have only heard about, and then eventually slander him. They will watch as Jesus is unfairly beaten, tortured, and then killed. And so Jesus, knowing that all of these things are about to take place, decides to take the disciples to the most intimidating environment that they can imagine to test the foundation of their beliefs. He brings them to this place where they're surrounded by pagan opposition, where they are staring at what is believed to be the gates of hell, and he asks them about his identity. Because Jesus recognizes that having the ability to answer the question, who is Jesus in the face of the world, is the first step to building a strong foundation of faith. And so the conversation begins in the middle of Caesarea Philippi with verse 13. Jesus asks, who do people say the son of man is? In other words, who do people say I am? And so the disciples respond, verse 14, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And it's almost like Jesus looks at those answers and says, okay, set those aside for just a second. 
But what about you? Who do you say I am? And what I think is so interesting is that Jesus asks his followers about his identity. He doesn't just accept the opinion of the anonymous crowd. No, he's asking the people who have traveled with him, who ate with him, who he had conversations with. He's asking the people who intimately know him. And I think that there's something to be said here about the relationship between intimacy and truth. Because when you spend a lot of time with someone or something, you begin to deeply know its very essence. That is, you truly know it. Which is why Jesus is asking his faithful followers about his identity. And I think that this is an important reason to be intimate with Jesus. You know, I don't think it's a coincidence that people who have confusion or doubt about the identity of Jesus are also people who are distant from him. Because when you pull back from someone or something, you begin to only have a vague idea of it and you almost create a character of it. You know, I do this a lot with my friends up at school will go and we'll, we'll spend all of this time together and then summer will hit and I'll be away from everyone. And during this time, they start to become fuzzy in my mind. And so what happens is, is that I begin to build these characters in my mind made up of all of these general characteristics of who I know them to be, right? But then the moment that we get back together in August and we have that first conversation, I realize, oh, you are way more complex than I made you out to be in my mind. You know, it's sort of like whenever you're at a basketball game, okay? If you have courtside seats, it is very easy to focus on the game because you're right there. Now, the distractions are still absolutely happening around you, but they're not as prominent because you're staring right at the game, right? But the moment that you start to back out, the distractions become way easier to see and the game gets smaller and smaller. And so, because Peter is close to Jesus and he doesn't let the distractions phase what he knows about Christ, he gets the answer right. In verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, it's important to note here that in Jewish tradition, the Messiah was believed to be this kingly figure who would come and release Israel from foreign oppression. So in this case, the Messiah would come and he would release Israel from Rome. And then after he does that, he would establish this ideal kingdom where justice would reign supreme. And what's fascinating is that despite his current context, Peter properly identifies who Jesus is. Despite everything that's going on around him, Peter can clearly see that Jesus is the Messiah, the king sent by God. And what's interesting is that the disciples are standing in the middle of a city that is used to waiting on a God to visit them. And what these residents don't realize is that a God has visited them, just not the one that they were expecting. The only ones who recognized this divine visitation were the disciples because they were focused 
on the correct thing. As Eric and I were talking about this sermon, he drew this illustration, which will be up on the board in just a second. Okay, Here you had all of these people who are staring into the gates of hell, waiting on a God. And what they don't realize is that behind them is the true God. But they didn't see him because they weren't focused on him. And I think this is an accurate illustration of our culture. All day long, we wait on and we hope for and we try to become the God that will deliver us when in reality, he's already come. But so often we miss him because we're looking the wrong way. I was talking to a friend who just got home from a mission trip in Africa And he was telling me stories about how he encountered witch doctors and and demons, and he had these very real encounters. And in the middle of our conversation, he said to me, you know, that stuff exists in our world. It just looks different over in the West. And that's because Satan's biggest tool here is distraction. And I think he's right. Satan wants to draw your attention anything and everything that's not Jesus, so that just for a moment, you'll forget about the real foundational truth that Christ provides. And so because Peter is close to Jesus, and he's not focusing on what's happening around him, he gets the answer right. And here's how we know this. Verse 17, 18, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus is saying, because you, Peter, had your mind properly focused, you were granted the truth. So now I tell you that you are Peter, which in Greek means stone. Now I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This thing that you see now carved into the side of a mountain looking so strong and so permanent that everyone is giving their time and their energy and their attention to, it will not win. And that's on two levels. The first is Jesus is saying that pagan and worldly opposition will not win. It will attack the church. It will try, but it will not succeed. And the second is that the underworld, death, will not win even if it seems like it has. We talked about how the Jews saw the Messiah, but what does it mean today to claim that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, it means that he's God's appointed son who he sent to conquer death through his own physical resurrection. It means that he is the one who took on the full weight of sin so that we would forever receive grace. It means that he liberated us 
from the oppression of the powers of this world and has promised the establishment of an ideal forever kingdom where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain and every tear will be wiped from our eye. That's why it's important to be able to answer the question, who is Jesus? Because your beliefs about God change your perspective on the things that could distract you. Because if we know the true identity of Christ that is grounded in the word, we recognize that we are not victims of the world, but we are victors. That's why Jesus brought the disciples to Caesarea Philippi. He needed them to experience what it's like to proclaim truth despite their circumstances, despite what people are saying, despite what you're hearing, despite what you're seeing, despite everything that's going on around you. What is your foundational belief about Jesus? Who do you say he is? If you don't know, or you need a first step, or maybe a refresher, I encourage you to get into the word and get to know who Jesus really is. Well, to finish our story, I wanna say that Jesus was right in more ways than one, go figure, okay? I don't know if you noticed, but the Temple of Pan is not exactly doing so hot as a place of pagan worship. In fact, ironically, it's now a place where Christians go on Christian tours to learn more about Jesus. How about that? And that's a great reminder that we serve a faithful God who keeps his promises. You know, while I was practicing the sermon one day, Eric asked me, he said, why is this message so important to you? Why is knowing Christ the last thing that you wanna say at Highland? And I really had to think about that. And then it hit me. I was in the car the other day, driving with my dad and we were just having a conversation and he goes, you know, things just aren't made the way that they used to be. The trend now is for companies to make something that can be used up and then thrown away. And he's right. And that's why I think knowing Christ is so important because in a world where everything around you will be used up. In a world where everything around you will fade and it will crumble, Christ will remain. So church, as the last thing I say to you, I encourage you, put stock in what will last. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for everything that you've done for us. Lord, we thank you so much that you are the foundation that we can build our lives upon, Lord. And I just ask that you give us the desire to get to know you. And for some of us in this room, God, I ask that you give us the desire to have the desire to know you, God. Lord, we ask that you take root in our lives. In your name that I pray, amen.